I love interrogating efficiency because we, I think, live in this culture that really puts this value on efficiency being like this godlike thing. It's like, but efficiency only draws back to our own value system, which has to do with profit. And so if we say, yeah, the, the system is getting more efficient, and then you look at the fact that like, still nobody's being paid a fair wage, still people are in the lines at the community food bank to get supplemental food. Um, we have no health system that's, that's supporting them and our planet is going to trash. Like, <laughs> then, then what is efficient about that? You're listening to The Breakdown with me, Chris Clearfield. The Breakdown is a podcast where we connect with business owners and experts to hear their perspectives on this crazy, complex world. I'm your host and fellow learner, and I'm glad you're here. Hello, dear listeners. I am really excited for you to listen to this conversation with uh, a woman named Ronnie Olson. Ronnie is somebody who works in food systems. And the fact that there, we can even put together these words food and systems is, I think, a really interesting starting point. And I think that this is going to be, I'm a little bit nervous about this episode, to be honest, because I think this can, this, this can come across as a, a challenging episode to listen to in some ways. We talk about um, the food system. We talk about inequality. We talk about racial justice. We talk about the the ability of government to right wrongs and the ability of government to cause deep hurt and to create massive wrong and imbalances. It's not political, so I don't want you to think that going in. It's not a conversation about, it is a conversation about social justice, but it is a conversation about social justice among many other things. And in the way that you might expect someone like me who thinks a lot about systems to talk about. So what I want to ask is for you to hang in there a little bit, because to me, this is among the most interesting conversations I've gotten a chance to have on this podcast, which is is hard. It's like choosing a favorite child. Um, you know who you are, child. Um, no, I'm just kidding. I don't have a favorite. I love you all. Um, but it it's a what this I, here's what I want to here's what I want to fight for a little bit. This podcast conversation, this episode, is not so much about the content of what we talk about, but of how we talk about that content. And here's what I mean by that. You know, my listeners, you all are all over the place, right? Some of you are in safety. Some of you are in um, reliability. Some of you are in software engineering. Some of you are in, you know, aerospace engineering, um, DevOps, um, you know, lots of different lots of different constituents. Some of you are are academics or researchers. And and so the thing that I think is the common ground of this podcast is the way we talk about systems, the way we get curious about systems. And and this is really a podcast where we are talking about the water that we all swim in. We are talking 
not just about the systems and what happens in the system, but how we define those systems, how we see those systems, how we see the systems more clearly, how we see the benefits and the values that these systems bring us. We talk about the food system, we talk about different economic systems, but how we also see the cost of those systems and the, and, and the, the, the cost that fully buying into this system without awareness can bring, not just for us as individuals, but for us as a society. So in many ways, this is a conversation about seeing the water that we all swim in. And as you know, that's a really, really hard thing to do. And so what I think is that, what I want to fight for a little bit is that even if you don't think you're interested in food, and even if you're not somebody who likes to think in terms of politics, hang in there for a little bit. Because I think what we get to is a really important conversation about how we define our systems, how we draw the boundaries of our systems, and who gets to draw those boundaries, and and what are the costs and the benefits that accrue depending on where you draw the little dotted line about what you're thinking of as your, your closed system. So with that, I will say thank you. Uh, I think this is a fascinating conversation. Send me feedback, chris at chrisclearfield.com. If you have any, I would love to hear from you. You know I always love being connected with you. Also at Chris Clearfield on Twitter and on LinkedIn. So without further ado, here is my conversation about food and food systems and the water that we swim in with Ronnie Olson. Thank you. Uh, So my name is Ronnie Olson, and I live in Tucson, Arizona. Um, and I'm a food systems and food justice educator, um, currently at the University of Arizona. I run a newer degree program called Nutrition and Food Systems, and um, I also work at Tucson Unified School District doing um, food-related projects with um, local farmers as well. So that's a little bit. I have a background in urban planning. I'm also a chef, um, and I think that the, my, the way that I kind of approach, um, my work because of like who I am is kind of with a systems-based understanding and like kind of context being at the seat of the way that I do my, and explore my work. So, yeah. So a lot of people will know what food is and a lot of my listeners in particular will know about thinking systems, but bring those two together. What is, what does it mean? What does food systems mean? Yeah, it's so great. You know, it actually took me years to be able to kind of describe what this is. And I think in the world that people move in that have to do with food systems, um, it's, uh, so food systems is really just looking at the how and the why of, um, our food. So how do we have access to it? Um, why do we have access to it? Who has access to it? Um, so it looks at kind of environmental factors, um, both kind of the inputs and the outputs. It looks at policy factors, inputs and outputs, um, kind of the social systems that go into it, um, the actual kind of processing and consumption of it, the nutrition behind it. Um, it's really looking at 
our global system um, and looking looking at food and why it kind of functions the way that it does right now. And a lot of the this study specifically has to do around um, our global industrial food system, which is um, the dominant food system <laughs> that we function in and with, um, and also looking at like, what are all of these efforts in the past um, several decades that are kind of pushing back on that um, of, of a local food system? And how does that um, impact people and community in different ways? So, um, those are the spaces. So it's relational, like any system, it is about the relationship between different things and how those are impacted by and then impact the different aspects of, of systems. So it's all of it. Yeah. And, and, and what, you know, as you, as we start talking about this, what works really well? Like what, what does our food system or our current food system, what does it do really well? How, how honest can we be here? <laughs> totally um, honest. It, I think that how it functions well is that it allows a very small population of people to gain an inordinate amount of wealth um, at the cost of the environment and people. That's what it does well. What else does it do well? Because it does, it, it does more than that. Um, what else? And I'm also, yeah. and then I want to talk about, I want to talk about who those people are. Cause I think that's really an interesting question. Yeah. Um, what else does it do? Well, I mean, I think the knee jerk reaction that a lot of people would say is it produces a lot of food quickly, but that is a misnomer. Um, it doesn't. <laughs> um, I think that the way that I approach a lot of my work is really interrogating the value system that we um, are operating from, oftentimes without taking into account what that value system is. So to say, yeah, it produces a lot of food really well, and then we don't interrogate the value system that that operates under, which is it's at the cost of our planet and a climate crisis that we're experiencing. It is our food system is the leading cause of climate crisis. Um, it's at the cause of an inordinate amount of poverty and hunger, which we have enough food to be able to feed everyone on the planet. 40% of that ends up in the landfill. It is a systems issue. It is a value system issue. So I think that I, I feel hard pressed to say that our current global industrial food system does something well outside of it is not functioning to feed people, right? It is a system like any other system that has to do with um, profit. And if that's out of the equation, then we can start evaluating like what, what kinds of things does it do well and what kinds of things, what kind of harm does it actually cause? So I, I'm at odds with saying that it does something really well under the value system that I hold. And actually, it's a really good um, it's a really good point and a really good opportunity to clarify something, um, because when I say what does it do well, I'm actually, um, let's see, I'm I'm asking that question from uh, a really an optimistic stance, and that uh, a better way to ask it might have been what does our food system do easily. Yeah. You know, you said produces a lot of food quickly um, at the cost of our planet. And I'm really curious about that. Um, but also, you know, at the inordinate amount of of at the expense of poverty and hunger. And 
I wonder if you can talk about that because for me, I'm somebody who gets access to the upside but not the downside of the food system in many ways, right? I can, I get to go to Whole Foods and I get to go to restaurant. Well, I can, don't go to restaurants now, but I get to go to these places that, um, you know, are the very top. I suspect the like the premium aspects of the food system, and like while I know there's hunger out there, um, and I know there's you know childhood poverty and and food scarcity it's not a lived experience it was a lived experience for my dad and his family but it's not a lived experience for me and so can you just kind of help me like calibrate and help me sort of sink into that yeah yeah those are those are all um i i hear that quite a bit too of people um I think living in spaces where we don't see it and so when you ask like what does the food system do um, maybe not well, but easily. Is that what you were saying? Yeah. Um, I would also say um, that in that it is, it is hiding what is happening within its own system. So when we, when you go to Whole Foods and you're like, oh, like this is an organic farm, like immediately most of us have this idea about like, I didn't grow up on a farm, but I had a, I have a visual of what that farm might look like. And I'm like, Oh, it's from whole foods. And there's this farm. And I'm just going to make all these assumptions that like the people that are caring for that farm care about the planet, that they care about health, that they're like their animals are treated well, right. The organic food industry is one of the largest global food industries in our nation right now. It started off as this grassroots movement as a pushback to a global food system that was prioritizing monoculturing, which is like, thousands of acres of one thing, which is not um, an ecological way to do anything, right? Um, and it's prioritizing cheap labor. Um, so if you if you work in the food system, you're, you're likely to qualify for, for food stamps. So you are likely living on or right around um, the poverty line if you work inside of the food system, which is has to do with farming, it has to do with farm work, it has to do with um, transportation, it has to do with processing, it has to do with packaging, it has to do with preparing food in restaurants um, or in grocery stores. Um, so all that whole space of how and why food moves around, um, the irony is that a lot of people working inside of that can't afford to feed themselves and their families. So the, the, the cheapening of labor, the cheapening of resources, which is our planet, the cheapening of experiences, all is couched within this space of like, but we have this really pretty picture of that farm and that animal um, when you go into Whole Foods about where our food is coming from. But it's like we're really removed from the experience of what is actually happening inside of our food system. And the fact that we continue to be so removed from people in our own neighborhood and our own communities that are experiencing poverty and that are experiencing food insecurity, um, we've, we've put an, an amazing amount of shame on that. And so it's not visible, right? People that are, I mean, I think that one of the things that I'm so fascinated with in terms of kind of systems thinking is also seeing um, COVID is the first time that I've ever experienced this much publicity and this much media on our food system, right? It's like, how fragile is it? And all of a sudden we see that like all of the food service workers are essential and they're getting no care, right? They continue to be left out of all of the ways 
that we support other people. And so I think it exposed what, what COVID has done is also really exposed um, the fragility of the system, that it is actually not something that works well. It doesn't work well. If it worked well, then people would be fed and people would be paid um, a living wage, right? Not minimum wage. I think it's like really important to also say like minimum wage is like the least amount of money that you can legally pay someone in this in this country, mostly, unless you're a server, unless you're filling another a space within the food system that that actually does not is not re- legally required to pay someone minimum wage. Right. Um, so there are all there's all this these nuances involved in in our food system, um, and a lot of it kind of like you can date a lot of this back to slavery and and racism. Um, so. It's, you know, so it's like when, when we talk about like, what does it do well? And I think I really love the way that you phrase that of like, okay, maybe not well, but like, what does it do easily? Right. That's, that's like, oh, that actually feels really differently. Well, and, and you, you know, just to choose one thing that I, I, I don't know much about, but I, I will agree. And with what you were just saying that one of the things that for really the first time in my life that I have been aware of is um meat processing the 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 meat processing kind of industry and the fact that um the response to this pandemic that required social distancing was almost um cruel coming from the industry and to me, that was a good indicator of like, oh, like this industry didn't suddenly become cruel, like the industry has been cruel. And um, so that was one thing. I mean, there was a, and I, I I don't remember where I heard this. It was either a podcast or it was um, uh, a story, a show on Last Week Tonight, and I can't remember, but there was a processing plant where, you know, the supervisors were betting on how many people would die from COVID-19. And it's like, that's not, um, that's not okay. And uh, that's a pretty good indicator of like the, the, the day-to-day dehumanization of that work. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I did come across that also. And I don't remember, where did you say that was from or that was? I don't remember either. Um, there's one of a couple of places it could be. I w- one of the podcasts I listened to, I think it was the Uncertain Hour, which is a marketplace podcast, um, did a sort of four or five part series around um, minimum wage and uh, chicken processing was part of it. And you know, another one of the things that's that's interesting about that, and I I just I find this interesting more generally is. Uh, you know, a, a a big processor who uh, kind of had previously been vertically integrated has started subbing out, you know, using hiring subcontracting firms with essentially the exact same labor pool to do the chicken picking. Um, and, you know, the 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 wages that the the compensation that that labor pool was getting, who was paid per piece or or whatever went down and the it's kind of interesting because you have this sort of I'll say fiction of you know having a different legal entity that these people work for 
that is un you know unrelated kind of in corporate structure to the parent company but obviously has a contractual relationship and suddenly you can pay people less and that's really interesting it's like what's where where did the edge come from to kind of put it in like business terms like why why are you able to get more from those people for less and and it seems like part of it was regulatory arbitrage basically like the the smaller subcontractor is willing to take more risk because they don't have skin in the game so when you know in the rare cases that there is a labor action or a lawsuit they don't have any assets other than the fact that they had this contract with these um with this company uh so yeah it's it's a really you know it was like a a tiny tiny spotlight on a part of this system that is around us every day and and for me it was disheartening and awakening a little bit yeah yeah it's i think it's so fascinating because i think it just it's like we just kind of peek inside of something else that we might not be aware of it's like happening and it's like oh wait this doesn't feel this doesn't feel good <laughs> what's, what's happening in here there's something about this that's like and i think that that is what it does really well is that we don't we don't see it right? If we saw the things that were happening in, um, in our poultry factories and that were happening on cattle farms, like we wouldn't, we're not okay with that. And so there's also this like cognitive dissonance. That I think we, as people moving through the world, um, are also okay having some distance from, because it's like too much to take on. It's like, right. we, what is the alternative? I don't have the capacity to deal with that right now. <laughs> It's um, it's the ones who walk away from Omelas. Do you know that story? Mm, I don't know. I've I've heard of this, but I don't know it. What is the? It's Ursula K. Le Guin, who is a beautiful science fiction writer. Um, the ones who walk away from Omelas is um, there's this sort of u- utopian city, and the the kind of cost for the city having all these utopian things this abundance is that um there is uh like a child in a closet that's sort of beaten and tormented and tortured his or her whole life and um this is so ingrained in the society that most people just accept this and participate and and the story is about the ones who walk away and it's really I'm saying it now and getting getting chills a little bit because it's 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 heavy and um, or the Hunger Games right which is a probably a more um, contemporary example where I remember my godson he was probably like gosh he was probably about nine at the time and was reading the Hunger Games books and um. I remember having a conversation with him and his mom about the fact that like, oh, this isn't, this isn't about a dystopian future society. Like this is about our society right now. This is about like the the structural choices we've made to privilege those in the capital city at the expense of all of the people providing them services. And it just so happens that in our world, the capital city is not one geographic place. It's more of a social strata. 
Oh, that's so good. Yeah. There, when you mentioned, when you were talking about that story and you said, oh, I just got, I was like, I also have goosebumps right now. It's your kind of like chills as you're saying that. So yeah, because it hits so close to home of like what is happening and what we're experiencing. And I think that's like, yeah, it's one way of allowing us to kind of evaluate how we participate in these different systems. And I think what's challenging is that we, like I, you know, I'm not an, an escapist and I really do want to like stay here and be part of it. And also, you know, how do we hold those spaces of knowing that we're also participating in it? And what do we do to also like counter that and make sure that we continue to make better choices and that we continue to be a little bit louder in the ways that we're wanting things to be. So it's, you know, it's just that space. I mean, we, in a previous conversation, we had talked about that thing of like, how do you hold dichotomy? And it's like, you practice, <laughs> you know, yeah. you practice you know, just being with the discomfort of that and like kind of being okay with it because we're, we, we are all in this together. And so how do we kind of move through and not, not allow it to be, debilitating because I think that's that's what I experienced when I was in in my undergrad and in my early 20s is that it felt it, the weight of it just felt debilitating and so how do you work with that now because now you know much more about the structure of the system and the inequalities and yet it sounds like you're also more um more optimistic mm-hmm yeah, that's a that's a good question. Um, I think a couple things. I think one is the the further that I got into kind of systems thinking and understanding, like, but then where did this come from, right? That that it really felt like it continued to go back to like these these personal decisions, these personal values that we people were making not like that there's this thing outside of us that's happening but it's that like this is like this is the internal stuff that i think is really happening and i and i think that that's part of the the area that i slowly got more interested in um talking about it and talking especially with like younger students and younger people that were wanting to know more is is like it's much easier to have conversations with kids and with young adults about these things because they're so aware of it and they're ready for the information than it is to talk to, you know, my parents. I mean, not specifically my parents, but like that generation when they're like, you know what, <laughs> I, we did our work, you know, I'm going to continue to do the thing because it's easier. Um, there's a million fights to be fought. Um, so that's part of it is I think that um, if we can continue to, to, integrate these types of conversations um, and lenses into the experience of kids as they're growing up and to say, question it, you know, what does it mean to know your farmer? It's such a like catchy little phrase, but it's like different when you start to actually meet people that are growing food and you realize that like that additional cost that you might be paying is just like, it, it looks different than, you know, we we're oftentimes comparing the price of like, the carrots at Safeway versus the carrots at Whole Foods versus the carrots at the farmer's market. And when we can put context behind that and understand what that means, then we can make different decisions um, and not just in the purchasing, but also in, in um, 
speaking up about it. So I think that's part of it. And I think the other part of it of, I think I have a pretty natural disposition of being like, my default is pretty happy. Like I, I genuinely experience life as being kind of exciting. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with like, I, I grew up with a lot of uncertainty and a lot of change. And I think from a pretty young age, I learned like, if this is, this is, if this is going to happen, that I just, I'm just going to get comfy with like the unpredictability of all the things, you know, of like, how can I just be more easeful with that? Cause like, if not, it's going to destroy me. <laughs> right. Right. You're going to, you're going to strap into the ride rather than trying to get off the roller coaster. Yeah, maybe. And it just eats at you. I don't know how you experience this too, but it's like, that's not fun to move around in a body when you're just like weighted down by the horrors and the, the challenges that we're facing. Like, so how do you, I mean, you were doing all kinds of systems work, systems thinking work and stuff. Like, how do you deal with that? How do you move through the world with that? That's a good question. One thing I would say is that many of the people I talk with are really interested in working with and changing and interrogating their system, whether they are um, attorneys uh, or engineers at an oil and gas company, or um, I work with a lot of people who are trying to meet, like trying to connect with other humans like in a way that is sustainable and is where they are. And and they may not even, they may not put it in those terms. Although sometimes they do. I'm, I'm working on this project right now. That's um, a kind of partnership with Microsoft and another legal technology company and, or like the, the legal team at Microsoft and a legal technology company are the, the two sponsors and it's a project that is called um, APIs as an application programmer interfaces. APIs are humane. And the idea is that we use um, lawyers as who have this like incredible amount of training. We use them to do a lot of drudgery, like a lot of drudge work, um, like cutting and pasting from one document to another. And um, that there is a cost for those people and there's a cost for the system and there's a cost for the, the quality of service that gets delivered. And it's funny, you know, the cost is at a different, it's at a different like level than the cost of someone who's picking chickens. And um, so I think it's, there's an element of that that's really important to acknowledge. And I think there's an element of, there's an element of suffering that's universal, kind of regardless of the baseline that you start from, um, which isn't to say that you can make these things equivalent, but it is to say that I think humans experience suffering in similar ways kind of regardless of what the baseline is. Um, so that is to say that, you know, I see my role as 
trying to help people make impact in the systems that are important to them. You know, in my work in in oil and gas, I mean, it's all about um, safety and reliability and also efficiency and and also, you know, the bottom line. And and I'm okay with that because I don't think systems improvement has to be zero sum. Uh, In fact, I think if you've set up a zero sum, like if you're dialing between uh, like uh, if you're if you're if you're a zero sum thing where you either increase safety and increase cost or or save money and decrease safety, then I think what what's true is that you haven't taken a wide enough view of the system you're working with. You don't have a systems view, which isn't to say that there aren't compromises that need to be made, but my mental model is those compromises are usually we're usually working at a frontier that is long before we actually start to hit those compromises. If that makes sense. Yeah. 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 For sure. Yeah. That, that makes sense. I, Chris, you also mentioned this, like there, I think there are like a dozen words that are like the sweet words that I'm like, yes, this is such a good word. Um, and you said in um, to interrogate earlier and I was like, yeah, that's one of my words. I love interrogating ways and ways of doing things and, thinking and different processes and all of those things. Like I love interrogating the thing. I think that it can be done playfully too. And not in this, like, you know, like it can't, we, it can be exploratory. Right. Um, but you also said efficiency. And that is another word that I'm just like, ah, I love, I love interrogating efficiency because we, I think live in this culture that really puts this value on efficiency being like this godlike thing it's like right. but efficiency only draws back to our own value system which has to do with profit and so if we say yeah the the system is getting more efficient and then you look at the fact that like still nobody's being paid a fair wage still people are in the lines at the community food bank to get supplemental food um, we have no health system that's that's supporting them and our planet is going to trash <laughs> then then what is efficient about that right then it's like it's actually not efficient it's actually incredibly inefficient it's just that we've we've wanted to like hold efficiency as this like this amazing thing right yes well and and i i think we're i think we're speaking i think actually these two points tie together which is um i feel like what what is often happening is that people choose sometimes unconsciously but but often very consciously choose where to draw the boundaries of their system and so when you think about something like um food and you think about living wage or you think about even a big employer like Walmart who is you know relentlessly pursuing low prices and then you look and you see well it's i don't remember what it is but some huge percentage of their um of their workforce gets some kind of supplemental uh nutrition or you know um cash payments from the government because even working at walmart full-time they don't they don't make enough and so so part of it is just about where we define where we define the boundaries. And and I actually think that um I actually think that government is 
one of the worst offenders of drawing the boundaries in kind of ways that impose very high cost on us as a society. And it's interesting because, you know, the kind of... I, I'm not usually, I, I don't usually talk in political terms on this podcast. And, and I have, you know, my audience is people who lean in all sorts of different directions. But what I think is interesting is that the, um, you know, there's a kind of myth, I think, particularly among um, liberals who really want to see the world be more just. There is a myth that the government is the mechanism to make that happen when in fact the government is very often the, the the persecutor of the injustice in the first place and you know one of the things i've thought for a long time and i've never really put it in these terms before but is just how much it matters and how important it is the way we draw the boundaries in our system and what i mean by that in in this like, here's an easy example. Like, the cost of um, intervention versus the cost of imprisoning someone. It's like, these costs are orders of magnitude different. You know, you can intervene. You can provide things that really move the needle on the likelihood of somebody becoming incarcerated um, with interventions like preschool in early childhood that are pennies on the dollar um, or mental health services. And I think some of it is the way that we do budgeting. Some of it is the kind of multiple levels of, of government and bureaucracy that we have. But we consistently make the choice as a society to spend on the expensive thing that is much less effective and much less humane. And I just think it's important to... I mean, what we're talking about, to go back to your your word interrogating, you know, we're interrogating the water that we swim in. And I think that these are important conversations to have, regardless of where you lie on the political spectrum. Yeah. Oh, man, it just everything you said. Yeah, I really I so agree with what you're saying and how you're saying that. Um, and I think. Yeah, that space of like what we're interrogating is the waters that we're swimming in. I think that that also is where I've also experienced so much, um, like I've seen a lot of resistance around that because it's so uncomfortable to realize that we're also part of it. That like, yes. right, to just be like, I don't want to, you know, like I, I have a different identity. That's not who I am in the world. And so there's this like inability to even like go there and into that those spaces of interrogation because I think what it that exposes is um the harm that we've created right or the ways that we've participated in fill in the blank right like yes. this isn't um and you you mentioned the um who is you said what did you say the way that we're drawing the boundaries and oh, so beautifully said and also like who's drawing the boundaries right totally. I mean, you kind of alluded to that but like yeah, I mean, the the history of uh, the many stories and the many histories of um, of people is like, it's all over the place. It's everything. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I, I think that, um, you know, there is a, 
there's a reactionary element on the right that and look i just criticize liberals for for a kind of fantastical belief so i'm going to cl- criticize conservatives um and not all conservatives but there's a reactionary element on the right that um has trouble seeing race as a factor in things has trouble believing that race is something that is a a kind of like a variable that matters and I always find it really interesting and troubling, but interesting when those people are talking in those terms, because, you know, there's lots of ways to interrogate. There it is again. There's lots of ways to interrogate the kind of the validity of that. And, and, you know, I'm somebody who I was talking with somebody about this the other day, like, like I'm embarrassed at how long it took for me to see not just white privilege but to even see myself as a white person was which says a lot about the kind of defaults like i had to move to tokyo to be like oh my gosh i'm a white guy um because those were the waters that that i swam in um which isn't to say i don't have like a diverse set of people in my lives but to to step away and be able to realize that my identity is culturally the dominant identity took more time than Ideally, it would have. There was not a lot of consciousness of that. Um, and I think that, you know, when I think about my my evolving awareness of my own privilege as a white person, a lot of it comes down to like, oh, my gosh, my family, who is, you know, like relatively like 19 in general, like late 19th, early 20th century immigrants, um, you know, a mix of, of Jewish and Italian and German and Irish and just like, like people that did not show up with a lot of privilege, but at some point were given a lot of privilege. And one of the ways that they were given privilege or that, that my people were given privilege is the ability to, to buy homes and accumulate equity that way. I'm like, that is something that very, very clearly is not even like an implicit bias, like was very, very clearly for a long time, an extremely explicit bias. And, and I think that's shameful. And the fact that, that most of us walk around without like tying into that awareness is really, really problematic. And so, you know, I think one of the ways to, if you're someone who doesn't think that if you're a white person who doesn't recognize the role of privilege in your life, I guess the thing I would just like highlight and and kind of fight for a little bit of awareness around is like, like not even just the cultural factors, but just the financial ones. Like, like did your family own a home growing up? Like, there's a good chance that that you benefited from laws that were drastically skewed in your favor. And the other way to think about the question is like. Would you, you know, if you could hit, if there was like a button on your desk and you can hit it and it's like, I think about it as like the soul lottery and this is a little bit woo woo, but like, like we all have these, (laughs) we all have, you know, if, if we are, if, if we have some kind of identity that is not just what is in the kind of physical meaty bodies that we're walking around in, like, would you be advantaged or disadvantaged by like hitting that button and randomly being swapped with another person's body in that moment, um, in your current moment. And 
that's, I think, a really, like, interesting way to put it. And if you look at the statistics, like, many people that feel some kind of um, countercultural kind of, or, or sort of like that there's this cultural aggrievement that they are working with as someone who is a white person or as someone who is part of a dominant socioeconomic narrative, like, would you be willing to put that button on your desk and hit it? Because if you're not, then you can absolutely talk about the hard work that you have done, but realizing that the system constrains the effectiveness of that work and the system leverages the work of some people and, and, and dampens the work of others. Um, and I think there's, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot we can do to try and be more effective at reaching for and communicating that awareness. Yeah. Yeah. What a, what a fun, like, um, exercise too on your soul lottery game. It's so great. It's a like wonderful space to like, as you were describing that, I was kind of doing that too. So I was like, okay, (laughs) let's let's try it on right now. Um, yeah, it's, that's so, yeah, it's really powerful. I feel like in, in there's a, there's something in there and you mentioned earlier, earlier when, um, there was kind of a, a short conversation about like incarceration stuff. And I, I work quite a bit in that, in that space, as well as like the early child childhood education and the connection between those two things is amazing. And it is such, such rich, um, such rich research. Um, oh shoot. What was I just going to say about, um, the connection of, oh, how easy it is for us to kind of um, demonize adults that are, that are trapped in these systems and in, in these cycles. But when we look at kids, it's just like, oh, poor, like poor kids, right? And like, we don't see the thread between those two, that, that same person, right? That same community is experiencing those things at the same time. And so we have this like, wanting to protect kid, And obviously there's something to be said around what kid, right? Like what's the race and gender of that kid? What's the identity? Like there's a lot to go into that to not to say like, oh yeah, all kids experience the same kind of protection, but, but there is something really different about that, that we, we lose. There's like an age where we start to not see people as people that are part of a system and a cycle that was created not accidental but you're saying too right like not accidental (laughs) yeah i think that's a really good way to put it and and you know that that reminds me of the the fundamental attribution error do you know that that psychological Mm -hmm. it's this idea that like when we do something dumb we look to the context but when someone else does something dumb we attribute it to their being dumb or a bad person or or whatever um and it's sort of like we give ourselves a lot of generosity around um, around things that don't go well, and we we often don't extend that generosity to other people. Um, you know, the work I've been doing recently has been rooted in a um, a tradition of of psychotherapy, actually called Gestalt which we talked maybe a little bit about in our pre-call, but one of the the tenets of Gestalt is that there's this, um, that, that people, what people are doing 
serves them in some way and that there's people do things and even if those things have a cost um there's some they're getting some value out of it um and it can be you know it can be in in really big ways in a system as we talked about what the food system does easily and it can be also in little ways like you know you might um like binge on netflix and then wish you hadn't and it's like but but you got something out of binging on Netflix. Like, what did you get out of it? And and what what Gestalt kind of fights for is just awareness of what's going on, so you can more clearly see the kind of the costs and the and 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 the value uh, in it, um, or really first the value in it, and then also kind of be aware of the cost and set yourself up to be able to make a different decision if you if you try to. So. That said, we spent much of this time talking about the the kind of what the food what comes easily for the food system now, and um, spent some time on the awareness of that and and the costs of it and the fact that it's really this multi layered thing. One of the questions I have is like, what would be what were the ways we would want to grow the capabilities of the food system to operate in a different way, um, to be more equitable, to be more just like what, what would we want to do? And what, what could we as consumers, as individuals, even as people who are thinking about it as a system, what, what can we do? <laughs> Chris, that, is, that is such a big question. <laughs> What what can we do? That's like the space that I really love to have conversations around. But I think for me, like I don't have the answers. So there, I don't, I'm not like holding something that I'm like, this is the direction. Um, but I do feel like the most useful thing that I have found is to be able to have and interrogate the spaces, but like have conversations with people and connect with people that are working in all the different areas of like, let's play with what we can do differently. And let's like all get on the same page of understanding that like people not getting a wage that they can, they can actually like support themselves on is not okay, right? It's not okay that people can work full time and then still qualify for um, food assistance. Like that, those spaces are not, uh, my, my dream space, when I look, look into kind of the future, it's like, it's the opposite of sustainability. It's saying like, I would love for there to not have to be programs like this because the existence of a lot of these programs continues to let us know that it is not okay. It's not just, this is not a system that functions for a, for a lot of people, right? I wanna, I wanna say like, it doesn't function for most people because when we look at our planet, we look at mental health crisis, we look at like our gut, we look at um, all of these things that are like breaking down. It's hard for me to detach that from this larger system that is that is that is functioning off of what I see at least is like a value system that has to do with efficiency and speed and productivity. And it's that very space that we, you know, it's like we want to have food that's prepared, that's quick, and that it doesn't cost very much. But we don't oftentimes explore what we actually, what you were saying a second ago of like, what do we get out of slowing down and cooking our own food? It is not just about like, oh, it's more nutritious. It's about like slowing down allows us to connect with ourselves. It allows us to engage in conversation. 
It allows us to kind of like be in a place and a time and a body. And those very things are at odds with the system that's like, do it, do it more, do it quicker, do it for less money. And so it's like, we don't actually, I feel like we're not benefiting from that space in all of these other areas, right? It's like the, the um, antidote to a lot of that stuff is about like meditation and yoga and slowing down. And yet we try to cram it back into that same system. Totally. (laughs) Hurry up and do the meditation, hurry up and do the yoga, hurry, you know? And it's like, so that I think that what I enjoy doing at least is playing around with like, it's, it's pretty counterculture to like, to slow down. And, but like, can, can we do it? And not just in words, but like, what does it feel like to actually do that? Yes. It's interesting that you ended up there because that is one of the things that is just really my, my growing edge. I've spent so much of my life moving fast and, um, and in many ways that serves me really well. Like I get to do a lot of stuff and, and there's a cost to it. You know, I don't get to appreciate what's in front of me. I don't always get to, you know, take the time to tune into my kiddos. I don't always, I'm not always able to just sit and appreciate all that I've done. And I had a, in, in this, this um, training course that I was doing recently, this gestalt course on kind of working with teams and systems, I, um, I had this realization that like, oh, like, like, I know that moving slowly is important for me. And I also started to see the cost of moving quickly more for myself and the fact that that moving quickly i mean part of what i think i'm trying to do is move so fast that i get to some endpoint quickly enough so that i feel like i've sort of proved myself and i've like arrived in quotes and it's interesting because the path to First of all, I don't actually believe that there's any place to arrive to on the one hand. And second of all, the path that we take is inherently um, is inherently crooked. And, you know, what I'm finding is that I have to I'm reaching more and more to walk the same path that I help my clients walk, which is to say, well, we kind of know the direction we want to go, but we don't know the answer. And so how can we sit with that? How can we be comfortable with that uncertainty? And how can we learn from it? And how can we experiment with it? And um, and so I like that the slowness is part of this conversation too. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I've, I mean, I, what you, I think, just touched on is that space of like, the, of arriving somewhere and it's like, yeah, I feel like for me, when when I've also kind of I'm in those spaces often. It's not like I have um, I've arrived anywhere, <laughs> so, but but that it is. Um, it I have had to do a lot of like internal work around my own moving fast because I have been in I have lived my life in those spaces as well, and and I think it, deep on some level, it is about just like being worthy and being like proving myself that like 
I matter or that I'm valuable and just like, but like, what would it feel like if like that, right? They're not attached. Those things, you can't arrive at those places. That's like an, that's an internal landscape to kind of move through. So it is, um, yeah, I'm I'm fascinated with those spaces of like, there is no one right answer, but like maybe slowing down would help us all. (laughs) Right. So I don't know. Right. And realizing that the drive for efficiency is the measure of how efficient you're being is totally dependent on the set of variables you decide to measure. And so thinking about and the timescale of those variables. And so being very clear about how you draw the boundaries of those systems and who gets to draw the boundaries is the sort of other element that we that we put in there. Um, so I'm just aware of the time. We should bring this to a close, but I want to ask you, what's one thing that you're taking away from this conversation today? Mm. Um, well, I just feel delighted to be able to engage in conversations around this with you. Um, and also just in general, because it's, I don't, um, outside of kind of classroom time, that you know, I don't have a lot, I don't have a lot of exposure to like being able to really dig into, um, the complexity of systems thinking in general and those ties, right. I just, it's so, it's so heartwarming to hear the way that you're exploring these things and the way that you're kind of interrogating, um, and processing this is, um, I'm just really relating to that. So I think that that connection feels really nice. So um, I think maybe just hopefulness that (laughs) that, that's what I'm taking away right now. It's just hopefulness because it is like, there's so much of this for me, at least goes back to this internal landscape. And so fingers crossed. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) How about you? For me, yeah, I was going to answer the question too. I think for me, it goes back to what I was just saying that um, that how important it is to interrogate the boundaries of the system and how important it is to ask who who has drawn these boundaries and what are the ways in which we are we either what are the ways in which we all co-create these boundaries? What are the ways in which we kind of um, uh, support, allow, tolerate the the boundaries that we've drawn. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I am very passionate about is figuring out how to apply this system lens to big social problems. And I think there's a school of people that have historically really gone after that. And, you know, you look at like the systems dynamics folks from the 1970s and the early 80s and like they were thinking about the environment and they were thinking about food and they were thinking about population and I don't as much see those conversations going on anymore um I think the conversation is a different one now and it's there's it's not an either or it's a both and like we need to be talking about these problems from a systems lens and I'm feeling um like, I still don't know how to in- get engaged with that work, but I'm interested in it. Yeah. Yeah, it's exciting. 
there's so much to explore. Yeah. <laughs> it's endless, endless little rabbit holes. And it's all, I feel like a lot of systems thinking for me, at least is like, it's just this giant watercolor painting where all the things just kind of bleed in and out of each other. They're not as like, you know, the boundaries are not as, um, as rigid or tight as I think we oftentimes draw them into be. So. Yes. Yeah. Well, Ronnie, thank you so much for this conversation. Uh, yeah, really fun and, and really engaging. So I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much, Chris. It was a real delight to get to talk with you. Thanks for the invitation and yeah, really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for listening. To stay in the loop about new episodes and to be eligible for my periodic book bundle giveaways, sign up for the breakdown newsletter at chrisclearfield.com slash giveaway. So what's this giveaway? Every few months, I bundle together three or four influential books, often written or recommended by guests from the show, and I give them away to a few lucky listeners. I'll include a signed copy of Meltdown, and because I'm friends with many of my fellow authors, I try to get their books signed as well, so you definitely don't want to miss out on that. Go to chrisclearfield.com giveaway to get on the list. Finally, join your fellow listeners, subscribe to the show, and share it with your friends. And if you love the show, give us a five-star rating in your favorite podcast app. Even one extra review helps us get an edge on the algorithm so more people can find us. And before we roll the credits, remember, if you're a business owner ready to transform your business and your life, find out more about my approach to coaching and sign up for a free intro session at chrisclearfield.com slash make the leap. That's all one word, make the leap. The Breakdown with Chris Clearfield is a team effort. The inimitable Rain Avant is our assistant producer and makes everything run smoothly. Gabe Turner and Claire Skinner help make the amazing content here and on my newsletter, available at chrisclearfield.com slash the breakdown. Laura Stack is our editor, and our theme was composed by the creative team at Spiky Blimp. Thanks so much for listening, and be well until our next breakdown.